Y'all remember that joke from Airplane? The old lady asked for some light reading. How about this leaflet? Famous Jewish sports legends. But in actuality, that's changing. Jews are crushing it in sports around the world, and we are here to celebrate them. Sandy Kopak gets his 10th strikeout. Sack! His first career hat trick. 41 points for Diddy Optio. It's Sue Bird's building. I'm Gabe. And I'm Jamie. We love Jews and we love sports, but most of all, we love quelling over Jews in sports. Together we host Menschwarmers, the longest running Jewish sports podcast in the world. Listen and subscribe at the cjn.ca and wherever you find your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to the Canadian Jewish Schmooze. My name is Michael Freeman. And I'm Alex Rose. And if you're listening to this, there's a good chance you already know that this is going to be our last episode because the Canadian Jewish news is going under with all the coronavirus stuff. However, we are still here, at least for today, uh, and we're going to give you one more podcast episode. I've already recorded an interview with an author, Daniel Kala. Uh, he's an ER doctor in Vancouver. And uh, he's working on the front lines of, of COVID-19. And he's also uh, an, an author of numerous medical thrillers about pandemics. So he's been studying about this and working in this field for, for well over a decade. Uh, so I talked to him uh, in just a minute. Uh, and then, Alex, what else are we going to be chatting about today? Well, mostly about the paper shutting down and, you know, what impact we think it had, what it meant to us, what it means for the Jewish community. And some of our coworkers, I know you spoke to them and we'll have a few interviews with them on the episode too. But I guess really what we need to ask, it wouldn't be a final proper send off of this podcast if we didn't ask, do Jews really need to worry about these Jewish legacy media outlets shutting down? It's a, it's it's a dumb it's a it's a dumb hypothetical. Yes, the it's a very sad week. It's a very sad Passover. Um, uh, the Jewish the Jewish Chronicle did close down just five days after the Canadian Jewish News announced it was closing down. There was also another Jewish newspaper in the UK called Simply Jewish News that is closing down. Uh, and and shortly after that, Bernie Sanders dropped out. It's just been a really rough week for Jews. Uh, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's been a really sad Passover. Uh, everybody's been, may, people have had satyrs over Zoom, uh, if if at all, or else they've just, you know, I, I don't know exactly how people are, are dealing with it. Obviously, you know, Passover shopping and cooking is stressful enough when you can go outside to the store when you need to and not wait for a half an hour, six feet apart from everywhere else in a line. Um it's just uh and and you know here we are recording this podcast i've got this i've got a, a a sheet draped over my head and i feel like i'm in a goddamn bunker like it's just these are this this is literally these are literally the end times and they feel like it i mean we hope not when i say but literally the end times, the end times end. i mean literally the end times of this newspaper uh and and perhaps this podcast uh not the whole world but damned if it doesn't feel like a bigger end time than that <laughs> yeah so i don't know man Ugh, this is just it's been it's been a week um alex what you've you and i've been at the paper uh just shy of two years um we're not the best people to you know give a proper send off to it um nonetheless 
uh, I, 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 we do host this podcast, so I want to hear what you think. What, how, how do you feel about the CJN closing? Oh, well, it's, it's, um, it's really sad. And it, it's, I don't know how much our listeners would know. I've kind of become, it's a bit ironic because I'm a journalist, but a news skeptic. I think a lot of, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I think a lot of the news that we consume and the ways in which we consume it are actually pretty harmful. And I, I never felt that way about the CJN. Um, I think that it has, it brings a lot of positive value. Just the fact that there's a certain community and it, it has news that's relevant to it. And, and we have a lot of like happy, feel good stories, which I think are worth reporting. We, we don't just try to scare people or try to anger people or shame people, but we try to connect people and, and keep them feeling like part of a community, even though we're spread across the country, we have things in common, important things in common. And um, I think it's going to be a really big loss. I think there's something almost intangible that, you know, the the Prince Edward Islander gets when they read about what's going on in like a nursing home in Vancouver or, you know, a Manitoban Jew learning something about Montreal Jewish community. I think those threads that really help connect us mean something important. And, and I think people will feel the loss and will recognize it and, and will want some way to to get it back so we'll see what happens in the future but yeah. i would be surprised if something doesn't spring up again when all this is done i just don't think it'll be the canadian jewish news as it was yeah no the 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 print is certainly dead um i suspect there will be something i uh, there's there's i mean frankly speaking the jewish community is just too too wealthy too connected like you know it's a very online community it, it's there's there's interest and and moreover it's a very uh, uh, literate and literary community. I just think that there's a lot of people who like it just it just makes sense. It's why the business model worked for sixty years, um, and you know you need to change. I mean, look, whatever we can say, whatever we want. I mean, it was a twentieth century business model that they tried to keep propped up in the twenty first century. It was never going to work. It shut down in twenty thirteen. They revived it in a stripped down way, but they didn't actually fix the fundamental problem. So it just slowly died out again like you know this this was a lot this was a long time coming and COVID-19 accelerated it they they said as much in in the in the farewell yeah uh, that letter that was posted on the website so the fact is if you're not actually fundamentally going to pivot to a 21st century business model uh you're not gonna succeed like you're just counting down the days which sounds like what they were just doing the people who are in charge I mean they they just they they resigned themselves to what they felt was inevitable when in fact it was not. Um, so I <laughs> I'm throwing some bombs here because like I mean, fuck it I'm fired. What do I care? Like I just <laughs> I, I but I think you know it, there's there's definitely uh, uh, an, an, like you say there's an appetite there's a desire there's the finance the the finances are available for a proper business model so. We will see something come up uh, within the next year. Um, for the in the meantime, we all just gotta you know hunker down and stay inside. Can Can I just share a quick story actually about? Do you know where I was when I found out I would be working for the CJN? I have did I ever no tell idea. you? You want to take one guess? S- synagogue. I was in Berlin. <laughs> I had just checked into my hostel. I was on a in Europe after graduating and. Uh, I got the email and the hostel gave us a coupon for a free beer at their bar. So I, I celebrated with the German bartender. <laughs> he was the pers- first person who found out I would be a journalist for the Canadian Jewish News. 
Um, and it was, you know, it was actually my number one place that I wanted to work out of J school because for all the reasons really? I was talking about before, I, I actually really believed in, uh, in the kind of work that we do. So it's sad. I didn't, I didn't know it was the number one place you wanted to work at. I mean, did you even know that we were hiring until Sunu Hooks sent you the link? No, no, I didn't. <laughs> it was, it was kind of serendipitous. Um, mm. but I had done my internship at the Jewish independent, a weekly Vancouver Jewish newspaper the the year before. So that's a great, that's a great little memory that you'll be able to keep with you. Um, we, we have a number of other staffers who've also contributed their favorite stories, um, including one story about how, how he got hired. Uh, our managing editor tells that story. Um, so uh, maybe without further ado, since we have some stuff to get through, why, why don't we play, we'll, we'll, we'll hand the reins over to them. You're about to hear five CJN staffers uh, tell some of their favorite memories and what they'll miss and, and give a little sign off to the paper. So um why don't we just hand it right over to them? Hi, I'm Ella Burkowski, and I have worked at the Canadian Jewish News for the last 41 and a half years. Um, I started as the receptionist. I was only supposed to work there for five months. And uh, look what happened. I ended up as the operation manager, and I also, the 25 or maybe 26 years now, I've been writing the advice column, Ask Ella. Anyways, I thought I would reminisce a little bit about some of the funnier uh, bloopers that we had actually go into print. I just remember, you know, how we used to stand around the desk every time the paper would come in. And, yet, you know, that feeling when the blood drains out of your head and you get little cold sweat beads and you think, oh, my God, and there's nothing you can do about this big 60-point headline that says, Jewish pubic library, or uh, short sleeve shit, or uh, chocolate mouses instead of mooses. One of the funnier ones that actually made it to Jay Leno, um, we had a, uh, a food ad come in at, uh, I don't remember if it was Passover or Rosh Hashanah, and uh, because of a technical glitch, the G from the word grape fell off, and it said Kedem Rape G. Well, that was sent in, somebody sent that in to Jay Leno, and it made it on the Tonight Show. Um, one of my all-time favorites was when, back in the day, everything used to be done by hand. So every, every ruler and everything that you had to put uh, lines between columns was on a tape. So when you used an X-Acto knife and you cut the tape, there was a little piece sometimes that stuck to your knife. Well, we had a classified section, and uh, there was a cottage for rent in there. And it said um, that the cottage was tucked away in the woods. And the little the little piece of, of the border tape fell right on the T, and it changed it to, uh, it didn't say tucked away in the woods anymore. It changed the T to an F, and you can take it from there. Anyways, I'm really going to miss the paper. I'm going to miss my friends there. I'm going to miss uh, the readers, all, all the letters that used to come into me. I'm going to miss everything. And most of all, I'm going to miss the connection to the Jewish community. Uh, thank you, everybody, for the many years of loyalty and service. I love you all. Bye. 
Hi, so yes, yeah, so I'm Joe Serge. I'm the managing editor of the Canadian Jewish News. Uh, I've been with the Canadian Jewish News since the early 90s. I can't remember exactly what year I started, but it was around the time of the last Great Recession because I got laid off shortly after, so um, for the first time. Um, I, and I've done just about everything. I, I worked in production. I, used to, I started off as a proofreader. I actually also worked in the, in the advertising department, selling classified ads for a while. And then I moved all the way up to managing editor, actually seven years ago when the uh, company went under the first time, when we shut down, I should say, the first time. I was actually the interim editor, and I was sort of the editor in, in the transition period between the old and the new until Yoni came over. So there's that. Um, it's funny, really, because I really shouldn't have been there. It all happened with a very chance encounter in an elevator way back in, like I said, in 1991 or something like that. I was living at the time at Neil Weissig, which Ryerson students and Ryerson graduates would know was a cooperative residence downtown Toronto, mostly for Ryerson students, although not exclusive. And I was, uh, I was unemployed at the time. I finished school about a year ago, and I was still living there. And I was walking into the elevator, and this one girl came in, whom I went to school with. Her name was Stephanie. She was in my class. We weren't in the same clique. You know, I knew her from school, but we weren't best of friends. We didn't hang around with the same group of friends. And she was asking me, hey, so what you do? And I said, not much. I'm looking for work. Oh, it's too bad. She goes, wait a minute. She goes, I work at the Canadian Jewish News, and they're looking for a part-time proofreader, just a guy to help them over with, it was around Rosh Hashanah, it was like around September. And they need a guy to come in for like maybe a week, maybe two at the most, just help proofread articles for us. And I said, sure, why not? I'm not doing anything else. So I walked in there, and um, for one week, I basically proofread. And then Gary Lafarette was the general manager. He said, so yes, yeah, so continue coming in until I tell you. I said, okay, fine. And 30 years later, I still haven't heard anything. So I, I guess I was still employed up until just, you know, last week. So that was kind of weird. And um, funny thing is, I actually never billed them for the first week I was there. So I wonder if I actually could claim that my first week of employment back. So, um, so yeah. My name's Lila Sarek. I started at Paper in 2008 as a very part-time proofreader. And most recently, I've been the news editor. Uh, the issues that seemed to get the most calls were our quorum issues, which were quite legendary. Um, the worst one probably was when we made a mistake and wrote connotation in the plural instead of the singular, and we had dozens and dozens and dozens of calls about people who lamented the fact that no one on our staff spoke the edition. What was the world coming to? Most recently, our quorum issue, we got a phone call, a panicked phone call from our printers, who thought a rogue employee had gone in and messed up all our templates because things were upside down and back to front and no one had told them. So they were hysterical thinking they had to rerun thousands of copies. So of all the good and noble work we did, it was our poor papers that always seemed to generate the most uh, calls from the community. And I have loved working at the CJN. Um, most recently I've had carte blanche to just think of interesting ideas and call up people and talk to them in tiny little towns about what it's like to be a Jew when you're the only Jew for hundreds and hundreds of miles or the importance of genetic testing, what it's like being a gay kid in a Jewish school, um, whatever we could think of that we wanted to ask, we were given the freedom to say, to call up the Ontario, the Art Gallery of Ontario and say, hey, do you have any stolen work from the Nazi period? Whatever we wanted to do, we got to do, and just explore the entire Jewish world. 
Um, it was such a great opportunity, um, and I have truly loved working at the CJN, and I have truly enjoyed working with all the people I got to work with, and I will miss it terribly. Best of luck. Hey everyone, this is Noah Leaptag, your friendly Canadian Jewish News account manager. I have been working in sales at the Canadian Jewish News for the past four years. And a memory that is fond, uh, that I'm fond of uh, with regard to the CJN, has to be not something that happened in the office, but something that happened directly outside of the office, and that was going to the bathroom as you know if it's jews there's a bathroom involved uh, and at the cjn our bathroom was down a long narrow hallway and it was a communal bathroom shared by one of the office floor and one of my favorite things at the cjn was the walk to the bathroom the walk to the bathroom for me was an opportunity for me to talk to other sales staff about stuff we might not want heard in the office it was an opportunity to say hi to every little clique as they would go on their walks to the bathroom, whether it was the editorial people, you'd have couplings there walking to the bathroom, or the graphics team who would all walk in. It would almost be as if you're in, it was like West Side Story, where you'd be walking and snapping, see the editorial people emerge from around the corner walking to the bathroom, You'd walk by them and sometimes they'd say hi and other times they wouldn't give you the time of day. And it's those little interactions among so many that I miss at the CJN. Of course, it's a pleasure serving the Jewish community in so many ways, but there's nothing that beats a trip to the bathroom. So I wish all the best to my CJN colleagues, staff and clients, and thank you enough for the many laughs and many lessons along the way. Hi, it's Yoni Goldstein. Uh, I was the editor of the Canadian Jewish News for the last six plus years, and um, I'm sad to see it go now. Uh, but I really do think back at all the amazing memories over the years. Um, you know, it was a group of people that welcomed me in, and I kind of came out from out of nowhere and didn't really know what I was doing. And everybody helped me along. And I think we grew really well together as a team, and I'm going to miss that team aspect of it. But I'm uh, proud of the work that everybody did, and I hope that uh, we'll all get to work together again soon. In the meantime, thanks for uh, thanks for believing in me and uh, taking a chance on me. And I'll see you all around. Thank you, everyone, for sharing your stories. You know, I, I hadn't heard a lot of those before, but... Yeah, it's CJN meant a lot to a lot of people, not just the staffers, but everyone who read it over the years, hundreds, thousands of, of people. And thank you all for reading. Um, and, you know, to my coworkers, it was a pleasure working with you and I'll miss, you know, I, I really like going into our office. I like the people I work with, with I, which I don't think everyone gets at their first job. So, so yeah, that's about all I wanted to say. <laughs> not, not just their first job, Alex. Yeah, <laughs> but a yes. lot of jobs, it's true. So I'm sure I'll find out in the future. Now, just to shift gears a little bit, since I recorded this interview before we found out that everything was closing. Uh, I have an interview here with Dr. Daniel Kala. He's been an ER doctor in Vancouver for, I don't know how long, but at least 20 years. He, he was around during the SARS epidemic. Um, and he's written a number of 
uh, really wonderful, uh, but kind of frightening and now suddenly realistic uh, <laughs> medical thrillers, like geopolitical thrillers about like the return of the of the plague and and all these sorts of things. I actually interviewed Daniel last year when his book We All Fall Down came out for the CJN. And so I got back in touch with him because I've been thinking about that interview. Um, so he was nice enough to give me to give me some time. And so I figured we would just we play it because we have it. <laughs> um, so shifting gears a little bit, here is my interview with Daniel Kala. Hey, Daniel, how are you? Good, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. It's great to speak with you again. I think it's it's been, what, a year or a year and a half or something. Yeah, it was just about a year ago. I was in Toronto. I'm I'm just wondering how you've been reacting to this whole thing. <laughs> I've been reacting with kind of a rapid cycle of emotions. Anything from sort of calm, poised calm to absolute terror, to uh, sheer panic and back, <laughs> back around. It's been kind of an emotional roller coaster ride. But I'm curious because you are working in an ER right now in Vancouver. Um, you know, you're you're there on the front lines. I'm wondering what it's like. You know, it's 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 a, it's a, I'm just trying to think how to phrase it best because it's a it's a very dichotomous kind of feeling. In some senses, there's an excitement, excitement, and a purposefulness, and we've done a ton of preparing, and we really think we've made our department as ready as we can. And so far, the number of obviously a topic you've written about in the past. I'm wondering to what extent this is matching up to what you had envisioned when you were writing books like We All Fall Down or Pandemic. Um, you know, you're talking about a feeling of unknown. Like, is that something that you kind of would have predicted or not? 100%. I was very aware. I mean, I, I say that in a bizarre way, it feels like I've stepped into one of my novels because you know, two parts. One, because even though emergency can pretty have be hectic and anxiety provoking, rarely do you yourself as a frontline healthcare worker feel vulnerable. And now we all feel vulnerable. Are we going to get sick? Are we going to take this to our family? So there's that personal, you know, element worrying about our own safety, our family safety, and, and our colleagues and, and the friends safety. So that element I was very aware of when I was writing this book. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is what drives good suspense in the novel is that sense of who knows what's going to happen next and just how bad is it going to be and so yeah this feels almost like deja vu in a very weird way 
the research and the time that you know I was writing some of those books. When when did you start to realize that this was happening? That this, that this was going to become a real pandemic? That's a good question. I started to get scared in, in January. I, I started to get scared when I saw the numbers, um, the way they were rising in China, you know, and quickly had surpassed stars. And I realized anything spreading that quickly is going to be very difficult to contain. And sort of in early, late January and early February, when the sporadic reports started to come from around the world um, of places that had their own cases imported, you know, at that time it was all tourists, or not tourists, but all travelers who had brought cases back and how it wasn't in communities yet, but, but just how quickly it had grown in China, how quickly they had to lock it down. I had a strong sense that we were going to be in, in some trouble. Um, you know, and maybe, maybe I, maybe it's kind of an alarmist nature in me because of the research and the writing I've done. Uh, but, but I was very worried to separate that's just something bad was brewing. It's interesting that, that we're talking about, um, you know, obviously it, it, it did spread through, through travel and that a lot has been, t- um, written about and discussed about how this is a, a, a 21st century thing. Like the world is so interconnected, right? What's this going to mean for globalism? What's this going to mean for, for, for tourism and stuff like that. Um, it did make me think about, uh, in, in the context of your work, what you wrote about was, was a hearkening back to the Black Plague, at least in We All Fall Down, which is the book that we, that we spoke about uh, a year ago when we last spoke. Um, and I know that you did a lot of research into the Black Plague and, and how it just decimated Europe, but it was a very different kind of global reality. And so in, in, on the one hand, it was like they didn't have the healthcare system, but on the other hand... It could have been maybe better contained, but it still seemed like it spread extremely quickly. I'm just kind of curious how you how you see like the 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 global angle here versus before. Yeah, I totally you know what you're getting at, Michael. And so one of the you know the kind of you know I mean you know uh, we can talk about more about this. The pandemics bring out my research has shown that great pandemics bring out the best and the worst in people. And one of the worst things that it does is bring out tribalism and jingoism and blame and you know, calling it a Chinese virus and all the stuff that's gone on. Um, and, and you know, the idea that because of the outside and the foreigners and stuff. But one of the incredible things about the Black Death was in three years, it spread from the, from Sicily to, to the tip of Russia, to northern Norway. There was, there was no travel at that time. You know, there was the occasional sailor, you know, or, or you know, basically it was an incredibly insular society that didn't move around hardly at all. And yet still the Black Death just swept through Europe in three years. My point is that globalization doesn't drive pandemics. I mean, the, the same was true of the Spanish flu, incidentally. It went from Tahiti to Alaska in something like four months. But there was no commercial air travel at that time. There was... You know, nothing like the travel that we have or interconnectivity that we have now. So to, to blame that is, is silly. A, a good, you know, a, a, a virulent infectious virus or pathogen will find its way to spread. You know, it, it doesn't need an intense interconnectivity. And in cases in North Korea, for God's sake. <laughs> well, they don't, they don't have, if you ask North Korea, they've already solved the problem. That's true. But, you know, my point is that it, 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 this was just a very successful, clever virus that figured out it would have gotten around. And I don't think, you know, I think the world's going to change after this. I think I think we'll be doing way more interacting virtually. I mean, I think things like Zoom and stuff, I, I think there'll be less business travel. I think there'll be less travel and 
tourism in that sense. But, but to blame this on the fact that we've become interconnected, I think, is, is short-sighted and a bit ignorant, to be honest. Um, in, in terms of other uh, correlations that you can sort of draw, another thing that stuck out to me um, is... Uh, but, but again, between this and, and the rise of the Black Death, I, I just thought it was so interesting that you, um, I remember very, very vividly, you, you described a trip you took to Italy to do the research. And you talked about how Italy was the birthplace. And so in this, in, in your book, and I'll say this for any listeners who, who don't know, but in your book, it's about the, the return of the Black Death, right? It's about, and, and so in that light, it, it resurfaces again in modern day Italy. Is that, is that correct? Um, and, and, Obviously, Italy is, in real life, the European epicenter, or at least it has been so far, of this whole thing. What's going on in Italy? <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I had an interview in Italia, an interview with an Italian newspaper two days ago, because my book was translated in Italian. And uh, it was a wonderful chat with a, a very uh, insightful, um, empathetic, intelligent reporter who gave me some, some, some backdrop of what was going on there. And, you know, and he basically asked me, how did I know this was going to happen? <laughs> I chose Italy because exactly that Italy was where the Black Death happened to launch. It was the Geno- Genovese gen- sailors from Genoa, Italy, that brought the Black Death back from Middle Asia, and it just kind of launched up there. So I thought for the completeness and the kind of, uh, you know, cycle of life kind of thing, wouldn't it be interesting if it restarted uh, somewhere in Italy? And as you know, if I thought it was a sort of monastery that's crumbling and then corruptly redeveloped and suddenly the black death leaks out in modern times from there. But the point was I just chose it really because it had a historic importance in the black death. And But so what's happened in Italy, Italy's had incredibly terrible luck. Um, they were hit at the exact wrong time by the exact wrong cases. Their response was poor. Um, you know, they waited too long uh, to respond, like many countries, but Italy in particular. And then Italy has some unique challenges in the sense that an older population, which makes them more vulnerable. They have a more socially interconnected uh, life and culture there, where gay people are very tactile and physical. Um, intergenerational families tend to live together. Uh, there's the Lombardy area, there's some crowding in Milan and other cities. So they have a, a number of factors that put them in terrible shape. But, you know, Italy should be the lesson for the world, you know, that when you wait, you know, even a matter of days, some of the graphs, like when you look at the, the epidemiologic graphs of, of the curve, um, that if you wait a day, I saw a model, it was incredible, if you wait a day, between day 20 and day 21 of when an outbreak like this virus happens, and when you start social distancing and, and, and lockdown and shelter at home testing, even that one day makes a 40% difference in the number of cases you'll have in the next uh, week, which is just incredible. Wow. Waiting seven days, it makes 400% difference in the number of cases you have. So, so I, I was reading a, an article, an, an opinion piece you wrote in the Globe and Mail. Um, it's sort of what, what reminded me that, that you know, you're very engaged in this, uh, in this discussion. And you had a line that you wrote that said, I've, as a quote, I've long understood the world was overdue, overdue for a catastrophic pandemic. Um, I'm wondering why you thought that. Well, because historically, there's, there's you, you know, history is riddled with these disasters. But, I mean, the last, we had a pandemic 
I, I specifically said catastrophic because H1N1 was 10 years ago. It was technically a pandemic, but it was such a mild illness and showed so relatively few people that it really was just another flu. It was a pandemic and it was a new kind of flu, but it really didn't, you know, have any massive or impact or tragic death like this one. But our last real comparison is the Spanish flu, you know, and there's, there are a lot of comparisons between what's going on with COVID and the Spanish flu. And that, you know, killed 50 to 100 million people and, 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 and changed the world back in, in 1918. And, uh, and we won't. I keep telling, I keep telling people this will not be another Spanish flu. We have medicine involved way too much. And, and, the, and this isn't a flu at all. This is a coronavirus, which is technically a type of cold virus. So it's, it's an entirely different disease, but there's parallels between those two pandemics. And, we are going to continue to have pandemics. It's like predicting earthquakes. I mean, we don't know what's going to go. You know we're going to have earthquakes. You know you're going to have a volcano eruption. It's true with pandemics, too. It's, it's naive and ridiculous to expect that there's not going to be another major pathogen emerging at some point. And the world has been relatively lucky for the past hundred years. I guess what, what I'm curious, though, is is why, why do we need pandemics? I mean, earthquakes, I understand, they're beyond... Our control. I mean, the, the earth, you know, tectonic plates move in a certain way, but pandemics seem like something that we could avoid if we were just better. I don't know that that's true, Michael. Like, I think it depends on, there are a lot of parallel, I don't say tectonic plates, and, and you know, it's, it, that's true, but there is also this viruses and bacteria and other pathogens or are mutating all the time out there in nature. And then particularly in, in Asia, like in China, where these viruses often emerge from, there's some farming and marketing practices where animals that don't normally intermingle are kept and have the same water supply. And, and that's a disaster because they can trade DNA information and cross over, a, you know, the, so a virus that doesn't normally infect a human picks up something from a pig that allows it to infect a human like it. So it's a constant evolution and every, you know, and it takes like something like four or five thousand mutations. It, it takes a huge, it's like winning a lot of, you know, it's like winning Lotto 69 or losing Lotto 69 before a successful pathogen emerges. But one is a, one as contagious as this that has just the right amount of factors, like a long incubation period. It doesn't kill everybody. It keeps a lot of hosts alive. It has asymptomatic hosts. It's the perfect uh, vector for for, for spreading and, and to, to presume we could ever stop that from happening, I think it's ridiculous that, you know, we've seen, you know, in the last 50 years alone, we've seen the emergence of HIV, Ebola, uh, you know, superbug. Our battle with infectious diseases is going to go on forever. They're just going to keep emerging. Well, I, 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 just to wrap things up, I remember very distinctly uh, the last time we spoke, you said the moral of every one of your books is to wash your hands and wash your thumbs. I'm assuming you have, I'm assuming you have the same advice for anyone listening yeah, to this. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Because, you know, the thing that, that, I, that I've been noting of late is that, you know, you mentioned an earthquake or a tsunami. You and I have no control over that. The tectonic plates move, no matter what we do, makes no difference. But this pandemic, you and I have, and the rest of the world, have entire control over. If we do that, if we carefully wash our hands and, and are incredibly careful about our using and talk etiquette, if we, if we social distance like we absolutely have to, we have control to stop this incredible catastrophe. So it's a very, uh, paradoxical 
to keep in mind. Well, Daniel, thank thank you so much for uh, for chatting with me, um, for explaining a little bit about this, and I do hope you stay safe and uh, and 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 thanks for for doing what you're doing out in Vancouver in, in the ER as well. Great, yeah, thanks. All right, keeping people informed. Thank you again to Dr. Daniel Calla for speaking with me and to everyone from the CJN who called in. Uh, and thank you, everyone listening. Uh, we, we started this a little over a year ago. Um, and you guys, whether, whether this is your first episode that you're listening to right now or you've been a listener since day one, we really appreciate you taking the time, giving us your support, uh, you know, subscribing, leaving us reviews. You can still do that, but it's a little bit more futile at this point. <laughs> we appreciate everyone who did, though. It was always nice to hear feedback, and it was just nice to know that people cared enough to listen. So thank you, everyone. Signing off one last time, my name is Mike. Michael Freeman. I edit and produce this podcast. I host it here with Alex Rose. Hey. David Collin uh, did our promotions and never appreciated that we gave him little jabs at the end, but doesn't matter now. David does it. You can find our entire uh, back catalog of podcast episodes at cjnews.com slash podcast, which will remain up um, hopefully indefinitely. And I do want to give a shout out to The Menschwarmers, our sister podcast. Uh, unlike every other podcast in the CJN podcast network, including this one, uh, The Menschwarmers have decided not to take a, a hiatus. They will just keep doing their thing. Uh, so if you want to hear about Jews and sports, we're going to keep that running uh, even while there's a hiatus on the rest of the network so look for them on itunes spotify anywhere you get your podcasts on that note uh i hope you all have a wonderful rest of the passover hugs and mayach um, and just stay inside stay safe hug your loved ones if you can thanks for listening